0: The following talk is from St. Michael's Fullwell, a gospel-centered community for Fullwell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information visit our website stmichaelsfolwell.co.uk. We are going to turn to God's Word and uh, you might like to pick up a Bible which hopefully will be nearby. Turn to page 1041 and uh, you'll find there Luke chapter 10, page 1041, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And at the moment we're, uh, through the summer holiday weeks, we're looking at stories Jesus told, uh, the amazing parables he told. And uh, Imogen is going to come and read uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan and then uh, Sandy will come and preach on that. So uh, over to Imogen.
1: The parable of the Good Samaritans, that's on page 1041. We're starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul Beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise.
0: Thanks very much, Imogen. Let me tell you a story. A boy was born to a peasant couple in 1276. And when he was about 10, he started to look after the sheep. And people noticed that he was incredibly good at drawing the sheep on a rock just with a stone. And so he was taken into an artist's workshop in nearby Florence and word began to spread of his skills. Then some messengers turned up from Pope Benedict and asked for a drawing that uh, he, they could take back so that uh, the people at the Vatican could check him out. He dipped his brush in some red paint and with a turn of the hand drew a perfect circle And said, Here it is. The messenger thought he was being made fun of, so he said, Give me another drawing. But the lad said, That is enough. Take it and see if it is understood. Well, it was understood, and he was hired to become one of the artists at the Vatican. And we know him today as Giotto, one of the greatest masters of Renaissance art. He knew that to be able to do that perfect circle, something so simple, was actually very difficult. Only a genius could draw a circle perfectly just like that. Well, why do I tell you that story? Well, two reasons. Jesus' parables are very simple. A seven-year-old can understand them. We teach them to our kids all the time. If you've been a Christian for a while, I'm pretty sure you could tell me the story of any parable without having to think too hard about it if i asked you to summarize what jesus said in the upper room the night before he died from john's gospel you might struggle a bit but the parables are easy a child can understand them but at the same time they have an extraordinary depth don't they each is perfectly designed for the setting in which it's told we'll see that today and probably every week And no matter how long you study them, you keep finding new things about them, not things that you've put into the parable, but things which are really there, which somehow you haven't spotted before. Spiritually, they're incredibly powerful and yet so simple, just like that perfect circle that demonstrated Giotto's genius. No one in history ever taught like this man. That's the first reason I started with the story, but there's another reason. How do you feel when someone says to you, I'm going to tell you a story? We love stories, don't we? We have an almost insatiable appetite for them from our very earliest years. They draw us in, they engage our emotions and our imagination, they make us think, they get under our defenses. C.S. Lewis said, they steal past our watchful dragons. And they're memorable. If someone asks you next week week, what last week's sermon was about, you probably won't remember any of it, but you probably will remember the story of Giotto and the perfect circle. So Jesus is talking to an expert in the law, which means theological as well as legal. And this guy is a straight-A student. He has all the answers. When Jesus asks him a question, he gets the answer right. No one does that in the New Testament. But he does. You've answered correctly, Jesus says. And he asks Jesus a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, someone else asked Jesus that question. Who was it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Very good. God, what a pair those two are, Margaret and Ruth. The rich young ruler asks exactly that question. Check it out, Luke 18, 18. And when he does it, Jesus punches him in the stomach. Not physically, but spiritually. I've kept all the commandments, really. Try this command. Give everything you have to the poor. Oof! His face fell, we're told. That's what happens when someone punches you in the stomach. But Jesus' approach to the clever lawyer is a bit different let's look at verses 26 and 27 what is written in the lord jesus asked him how do you read it he answered love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself it's all about love all your heart love your neighbor as yourself that's pretty straightforward isn't it That's it, Jesus says, do this and you will live. But, verse 29, the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Lawyers love definitions, don't they? Just give me seven points on what a neighbor is, and then I can tick all the boxes, and I'll have done everything perfectly. I've got it covered. If it's quite difficult, then that's even better, because I can make absolutely sure I've done it all. I just need to know who my neighbor is. He has all the right answers and yet he completely misunderstands Jesus' kingdom and he fails to understand therefore eternal life. Which is a shame because he's a clever bloke. So I guess the sermon is about the 12 inch gap. Do you know what the 12 inch gap is? Well, if you don't, stick around. We'll get the answer shortly. He has all the right words but no actions. He knows the right answers, but it doesn't change him. Notice that Jesus' two key commands here are about actions, about deeds, not words. Verse 28, do this and you will live, and then at the end go and do likewise. And I guess this is an issue for us too, isn't it? We Maybe know the right answers, we believe the right things, but does it really change us? If it doesn't change you, then you don't really believe it. By their fruits, you will know them. Jesus doesn't give him a seven-point definition of neighbor. He tells him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, It's desert, it's mountainous, mountainous. it's bandit country, and he was beaten up and left for dead. But, verse 31, a priest happened, Jesus says, to be going down the road. Wow, that's lucky, just in time. And he sees the man, but he passes by on the other side. He was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means he'd finished his two weeks at the temple. He was as richly pure as he could be. He knew the right things, but he didn't do anything. Then a Levite turns up. And he's also a specially holy person, but he's not quite as holy as the priest. He too sees him, but does nothing to help him. And then we get a surprise. After a priest and a Levite, what is the lawyer expecting? He's expecting an ordinary Israelite. It's a bit like one of those jokes, an Englishman walks into a bar, then a Welshman walks into a bar, who are you expecting next? Either an Irishman or a Scotsman, you're not expecting a parrot Well, the Samaritan is a parrot. What's he doing here? This is unexpected. Someone wrote that only if you've lived in a community with a long-established collective enemy can you appreciate Jesus' courage in telling this story. It's a bit like walking into a bar in South Armagh and saying, gather around, guys. I've got a story to tell you and then telling a story which makes the IRA look terrible, and the hero turns out to be a member of the DUP. You'd be lucky to get out of there alive, wouldn't you? The Samaritan, like the other two, sees the guy, but unlike them, he does something. Or rather, before he does something, he feels something. It says he took pity on him. And you could translate that as he was moved in his bowels with compassion. It refers to your guts. It's a deep, visceral, emotional response. Every time in New Testament historical narrative it is used, it is used to describe Jesus. He is deeply moved with compassion. He has no idea who the poor man is. That's the point of him being stripped of his clothes and left half dead. The clothes would identify him, as Jew or Gentile or something else, and he can't speak, so they can't hear his language or accent. So he's just a human being in trouble. And the Samaritan's not even in his own country, he has no obligation to the guy, but he acts because he is filled with compassion. Verse 34. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. That means he must have torn his own clothing to bandage him. He poured on oil and wine. He gets off his donkey and puts the man on it. He takes him to an inn and took care of him. He stays overnight, so he has to abort his journey. And he says, whatever you need, I will provide for. This is radical, extravagant generosity. It's all we could ever ask for if we were in trouble, and more, for someone he doesn't even know. How do you like that definition of neighbor, Mr. Lawyer? We can't hear the story without feeling guilty, without asking, well, how would I respond to somebody in trouble that I have no connection with? Do we respond like this? Some years ago, two psychologists at Princeton University, John Darley and Daniel Batson, conducted an experiment inspired by this parable. They got a range of people who were studying theology and they asked them to very quickly, just in 15 minutes or so, prepare a talk on a biblical topic and then present it at a neighboring building. And on the way to the presentation, they passed a man slumped in an alley, head down, eyes closed, coughing and groaning. Would they stop and help? To make it more interesting, they introduced three variables. Each student was given a questionnaire on why they decided to train for the ministry. Was it for personal fulfillment or was it to help other people? Secondly, they varied the topic they had to speak on. They were either given what difference does it make to be ordained or they were given the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then thirdly, some of them were told, oh, you're already a bit late, they're waiting for you. And others were told, oh, they're not ready yet, but you might as well go over there now. When people were asked who would stop, they almost all said the people who were talking on the Good Samaritan and the people who came into ministry to help people. Neither of those things made the slightest difference. In fact, Darley and Batson said some of those hurrying over to give their talk on the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the groaning victim on their way. I'm pleased to tell you, by the way, that no inconvenient victim impeded my smooth progress to church this morning. The only thing that made a difference was whether they thought they were late or not. 10% of those who thought they were late stopped, sorry, only 10% stopped. 63% of those who thought they had a bit of time stopped. Now, I guess the point of that is it shows how easily we pass by on the other side. Jesus here is requiring what no religious system can require, a radical, extravagant, costly generosity to anybody in need. That's unreasonable to demand, isn't it? And yet, it's what we desperately need when we're in trouble. And if we gave it, the world would be a very different and much better place. I wonder if you noticed that Jesus reverses the lawyer's question. He asks at the start, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to care for? But at the end, Jesus turns it around. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Not who is my neighbor that I have to care for, but who is a neighbor to me? he makes him see it from the viewpoint of the victim the obvious way to tell the story is to make the samaritan the victim the third person's an ordinary jew and he cares for a samaritan but instead jesus makes the samaritan the rescuer what would it feel like to be rescued by somebody who has no obligation to me from whom i deserve nothing what difference would that kind of rescue make? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man in desperate trouble? These stories are simple, but they're not shallow, are they? There's an amazing depth to them. C.S. Lewis has a chapter in Mere Christianity entitled Christianity Hard or Easy. And in it he points out that sometimes jesus demands seem impossibly difficult be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect love your enemies don't let lust or inappropriate anger enter your heart everybody is your neighbor no ethical system has ever demanded anything like that it's beyond what's realistic for human beings but on the other hand jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about tomorrow. So is Christianity hard or is it easy? Lewis says, if you're trying to satisfy Jesus' demand in your own strength as your natural self, then you'll never do it. If you try it, it will make you resentful and bitter. What you have to do is hand over your whole self to Jesus to say, I need something miraculous to happen to me, a work of grace that I can't do myself. In other words, we need a new beginning, a new birth. Lewis says, if I'm a field that contains nothing but grass, then I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but all it will produce is grass and not wheat. If I want to produce wheat, The change must go below the surface. I must be ploughed up and re-sown. As Jesus says, a thistle cannot produce figs. So, do you see what Jesus is teaching the lawyer here? We know the commandments, love God with all your heart, etc., and love your neighbor as yourself, but we won't do them unless something happens to us. Something that radically changes us not in our heads, we know the answer, but in our hearts. We need to change our hearts, the control center of the personality. That's where love comes from. So that is the 12-inch gap, get it? Here to here. The lawyer knows love is the answer, but he doesn't do it because it's in his head and not in his heart. And that's why Jesus tells him a story rather than giving him a definition. You see, there's a bigger story that changes us. Deep down in here, a stranger who comes in to our rescue when we deserve nothing from him, when we were helpless and virtually dead. And he didn't just get off his donkey, he got off the throne of heaven. And he stripped off his clothes, he got bloody and messy as the Samaritan must have done. He went out of his way not to an inn for one night, but to the depths of the grave. And he paid the price not with a few coins, but with his own blood. And he did it not because he had to, but because he was moved with compassion deep in his guts. And when you hear that story and apply it to yourself, who was a neighbor to me, then... It begins to change you. It bridges that 12 inch gap. It gets from here down to here. And you know it's done that when it changes what you do. Christianity fills you with a strange love for people that you never loved before. It's impossible when we're trying to do it in our own strength, but it's kind of easy when we become a new person. Let me tell you about J. John. J. John's an evangelist, he was born in London uh, from a Greek Cypriot family, and he came to faith at the start of his second year in college in London. Someone on his first day of his second year gave him a copy of John's Gospel, he took it home, read it, and said, why has no one ever told me this before? And he became a Christian that night on his own at home, and he's still a Christian 45 years later, so it was real. But here's the point. The next day, walking from the tube station to his lecture, he passed this homeless guy. He'd passed him every day for a year and ignored him. But on that day, he saw him and he started chatting to him and he took him for breakfast and he got to know him. You know, something had changed in here, the grass had been plowed up and been sown with wheat. It's what George Herbert, the poet, called quick eyed love. Love sees, we see with our heart. The Pharisee and the Levites saw the man, but they didn't see him. But the Samaritans saw him with love. Let me tell you another story. Tim Keller in New York was once having lunch after church with some of his congregation, and a young woman asked him, What difference does it make that salvation is by grace and not by works? And Tim Keller doubtless had a very thought-through, carefully reasoned answer ready to go, but he had a mouthful of food, so he had to chew it first. And while he was chewing it, she answered her own question, and she said, I suppose it means that there's no limit to what God can ask me. That's it, isn't it? No limit to what God can ask us. Everybody is your neighbor. There's no one who's beyond the scope of genuine love. I don't think Jesus told us this story to make us feel guilty. He told it to make us realize that we need to change deep down in our hearts. Only that change will give us the power to go and do likewise. So let's summarize. Jesus meets this analytical, highly educated lawyer who has all the right answers, and he tells him a story. He doesn't meet him with an argument or a command, but with a story that is surprising, that's moving, that's all about compassion and love in action. And it's a story that evades his watchful dragons and bridges the 12-inch gap. And it must have made him go away wandering and thinking. Here's a question for you. Has this story done more to change lives than any other fictional story ever told in history? It says God wants you to love everyone. Everyone in need is your neighbor. This is what John Wesley said. There it is. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Wow. And remember, this isn't an optional choice, and it's not love God or love your neighbor. No, both must be attempted. So, if that's true, question five, what sort of church must we be? Well, I suggest to you that proclaiming the good news and caring for those in need go together. They must go together, as we see absolutely clearly in Jesus' ministry. It's like smoke and fire where you find one, you expect to find the other. John Stott says they're like the two wings of a bird or the two blades of a pair of scissors. They work together, each needs the other. A bird with one wing can't fly scissors which are lost one blade are thrown away because they're useless we need both and so preaching the gospel changes hearts and that creates people who care for the vulnerable and don't pass by on the other side and that in turn that sort of undeserved mercy and love is rare and beautiful and attractive it makes people say wow something's going on here They find themselves saying, these people are not just a bunch of weirdos who do odd stuff in a strange building on a Sunday morning. Maybe we better start listening. So gospel ministry and caring for the vulnerable are symbiotic, not parasitic. By which I mean they don't cannibalize each other. It's not more of one means less of the other. No, they both work together for one common aim, which is to build the kingdom of God. And we always need both. I believe that only transformed Christians by their love can heal a broken community. I mean, don't miss the fact that this story is about bridging gaps, not just the 12-inch gap, but the gap between Jew and Samaritan. On that road, Jerusalem to Jericho, the injured man is almost certainly a Jew. And Jews and Samaritans never talk to each other they certainly never touched each other but the samaritan bandages his wounds he tenderly pours on oil and wine he ends up covered in his blood gospel love for your neighbor bridges the gap so last question who do i hang out with not just people like you get to know the people who are not like you because they are the people that you'll really learn from Stanley Hauvas talks about the miracle of being a people whose very differences contribute to their unity. The miracle of being a people whose very differences contribute to their unity. That's the adventure of being a Christian. It will take you to places that you would never dreamed of going to, Rosie. And it will lead you to people that you never imagined that you would know. A healthy church needs to grow, not just in numbers on a Sunday morning, but in all the ways in which it blesses the community around it. So the community finds itself saying, we cannot do without churches like this. Where would we be without these guys? Of course we can't care for everyone, but all of us can care for someone. And the Samaritan gave not just money, he gave time, attention, care, and love. Love God and love your neighbor. So six questions that I hope I have partly answered, but I also hope that you will go away and continue to reflect on them. Why a story? What is the 12-inch gap? Who is my neighbor? Is Christianity hard or easy? what sort of church must we be and who do i hang out with now we're going to share communion together which is the time we remember that we're all part of one body and therefore we all care for one another